1: Right, boys and girls we are back with another edition of the ben Dominage podcast brought to you by fox news you can check out all of our podcasts at foxnewspodcast.com I hope that you'll rate, review and subscribe to this one and share it with your friends if you find it of interest. Today I have a conversation for you with Chad Pergram. He's the senior congressional correspondent for Fox News, familiar to you all, I'm sure. Um he is our resident historical congressional expert when it comes to everything that goes on on Capitol Hill and uh he is uh, t- talking to me today about a number of different issues of importance on Capitol Hill, particularly the reaction to China's uh, spy balloon, which uh, has roiled a lot of the conversation there at the moment. Uh, And of course, the anticipation of President Joe Biden's State of the Union, the first where he'll have to face off against a new speaker in Kevin McCarthy. Chad Pergram coming up next.
0: Jason in the House, the Jason Chaffetz podcast. Dive deeper than the headlines and the party lines as I take on American life, politics, and entertainment. Subscribe now on Foxnewspodcast.com dot com or wherever
1: you download podcasts. Chad Pergram, thank you so much for taking the time to join me today.
0: Great to be here, Ben. Thank
1: you. I have many things to talk to you about, and was initially planning to talk to you about the. Specter of the debt limit fight hanging over the upcoming State of the Union. But now Mm -hmm. we have another specter to talk about (laughs) one that that hung over the entire United or most of the United States uh, over the long uh, shadow. Yes. Uh, The conversation obviously is going to be have to be one that President Biden addresses. One would think in the State of the Union. What's the reaction on Capitol Hill to how this played out?
0: Well, immediately you had Republicans saying, again, another example of the president's poor leadership. Uh, This shows that the Chinese can do whatever they want to do to us willy-nilly. Some have viewed this as psyops in the intelligence community. They refer to this as psychological operations. You try to get inside the heads of the administration or the military or, or, better yet, the American people. I mean, we saw that uh, indirectly and directly in the 1950s, with Sputnik, which was the the satellite launched by the Soviet Union during the space race of the 1950s, 1960s, and uh, you know, I remember talking to. You know, my relatives, my dad would talk about, yeah, you could see it go right overhead, Uh, you know. And so you had that same effect happening here over the past couple of days. People in Montana, Missouri, Kansas, certainly South Carolina, uh, seeing this thing and saying, what in the world has uh, happened here where our government and our military and the administration allows this to happen? Now, there's a few things we don't know yet. The administration says we were tracking the thing the whole time. And, uh, you know, we didn't want this to come down somewhere where it could have harm. Now, you know, I'm not a, a physicist, but I know the physics of this are going to be very complicated. But they were very good in terms of the physics of saying, OK, once this gets offshore, we can bring this down and, and kind of pinpoint where it would land. Again, it has to land in territorial waters of the United States, which is 12 nautical miles. So that happened. Recovery, that's a problem. The question that is not answered is just, A, what did it scoop up? B, has this happened before? And there's, depending on who you talk to, different information there. And if it was scooping up stuff, why didn't we jam it or were we jamming it? I had that conversation with a very senior Republican just this morning. And they said, well, even if we jammed it, it's obvious that it was still being controlled. You know, this was not a a free-floating thing. Uh, They were obviously controlling this back from from China. Here's the other part of this, is that we knew that Secretary of State Blinken uh, was planning to go to Beijing before this happened, not going now. Um, There are some who have raised the question as to whether or not President Xi in China actually has full control. There is some uh, tension there between the military and him, and certainly in the, you know, how they've handled COVID for several years and then suddenly dialing that back, but that the military kind of had carte blanche to do what it wanted to do. And that could be even a more dangerous situation if you don't have direct control in China of the military, where maybe you can have diplomatic talks with somebody. And it's thought, and this is just a theory. These are people trying to figure out everything on Capitol Hill. But the conversations I've had with people the past few days, you know, maybe this was done by people below Xi to undercut the conversation with Blinken. That's a problem.
1: One thing that is interesting to me about this is obviously, you know, you have these these critics who are emerging who are saying, surely we we should have been able to do something about this earlier. Um, and there's some discrepancy about uh, kind of how much we knew about it approaching, uh, especially when it was off the the coast of Alaska. Uh, Is there any clarification on that yet uh, or is that something where we're going to have to wait until there's uh, further briefings and and that type of thing uh, to know what the situation was in terms of preventing it from even getting as far as it did?
0: Yeah, certainly not enough information just yet. More clarification to come. Uh, you know, we work very closely with the Canadians as well. Uh, you know, this floated through the Yukon, British Columbia, uh, you know, Alberta, Manitoba, presumably. You know, I mean, there's a lot. Saskatchewan, I'm, I think Manitoba is a little further east there. Uh, but, but, you know, you think about the Canadian provinces there. And it's not like this is this is just another ally. This is the United States and Canada. You know, we share a massive border. We share intelligence with them all the time. And the fact that you know they didn't do something or we didn't respond back and forth—that's a question that has not been answered. I mean, you know, you had uh, you know the Canadian government calling the Chinese ambassador in Ottawa in for a dressing down just a couple of days ago. Uh, that's a, a part of this puzzle that has not been worked up because you know Montana is a lot smaller than Canada, <laughs> and, and and there's a lot more places up there you could probably shoot it down in 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 places in northern Alberta, uh, British Columbia, whatnot, where it's not going to touch anybody. Uh, so that's a, that, that's an issue as well.
1: You know, I, I think that this is just, uh, you know, I know that you are a student of, of history. Uh, this is a, a fascinating time to revisit the point where the Japanese sent uh, a, a huge number of balloons uh, across the Pacific uh, during World War II, uh, which ended up being uh, covered up, obviously, by our government in order to prevent the type of PSYOPs, that you're talking about. Ultimately, uh, the bombs that those balloons were carrying only resulted in, uh, I believe, the deaths of six uh, Americans who, uh, uh, unfortunately, young children who came across a, um, a bomb while on a, on a picnic. Uh, and that story was was thoroughly squelched at the time because they were worried uh, that Americans would, would freak out. It's a little freaky to look up in the air and see something like this and feel like, you know, is there someone in, in charge who's actually going to do anything about it? Uh, And that, to me, is just an interesting aspect of this.
0: You know, what's amazing about this, Ben, is that and this is maybe, you know, we're still trying to piece this together, but maybe some might, you know, take a defense of the administration on this is, you know, you don't know exactly what's on it. So maybe there was an intelligence failure there. That's the first thing. If we shoot it down, what does it do? Maybe it took literally a couple of days to figure this out. You know, President Biden said he gave the order on Wednesday to do it safely. Well, safe means a couple of things. If we shoot it down, does it, you know, is it an e- EMP effect over the United States, electromagnetic pulse, and it knocks out all of your, uh, you know, videos and cars and anything with a computer chip in it? I guess that would take care of TikTok, frankly, Ben. I don't know. Maybe so. You killed two <laughs> birds with one stone there. I don't. I don't know. But 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 you know, or is it a dirty bomb? You know, those are the types of things that we just don't know. So that's one thing. Number two, this would not be the first time. And this is why people, you know, I think, in my opinion, you know, they need to study their history and, and follow what has happened before. Uh, you know, little incidents sometimes have sparked global conflict. I mean, go talk to Archduke Ferdinand about this. You know, I mean, the assassination in 1914, you know, that sparked World War I you know the U2 incident in 1960s with a uh, 1960 in fact with a, a spy plane uh, you know you know went down in the Soviet Union Francis Gary Powers was the pilot i mean i'll even go to more recent history and i talked about this on the air on saturday where you had a us surveillance plane with military people that went down uh, on hainan island and this mm-hmm. was in 2001, before 9-11. And there were about nine or 10 days before the United States got their service personnel uh, back. And there was a question yeah. about were they spies or are they spying or are they conducting surveillance? You see, but, but you know, but we were doing this. And, and and you know what people have not talked about also. And this is the stuff that we would never know unless we would be privy to the briefing. What are the things that we do all the time over there that if, we, you know, if we were to be provocative here and shoot the thing down, we might have something at risk there, either assets, meaning human people on the ground giving us intelligence, number one, that we know that they know where they are, and we shoot this down. And that's where you get to your Archduke Ferdinand moment. You know, you start something bigger by taking aggressive military action that results in something that you really don't want to be into, which is World War Three or Four, depending on how you calculate this uh, after the Cold War. <laughs>
1: Well, you know, Chad, I think that this is going to be interesting to see what President Biden says. He has a couple of other things that, uh, you know, are, are hanging over him right now. And, and obviously, one that I don't expect him to talk about uh, just before we get to the uh, debt ceiling issue uh, is the continued uh, issues related to classified documents, uh, issues that have uh, become increasingly frustrating for uh, the, you know, top gang of eight. Uh, folks on Capitol Hill, particularly you know Senator Mark Warner, uh, who has been uh, uh, it seems very frustrated with the fact that uh, they're not getting more information about what was in these documents, uh, about their nature, uh, and feeling that that the uh, Biden administration is essentially uh, trying to use the existence of a a special counsel on this to prevent uh, the Senate from accessing the kind of information they'd like to have. Uh, what if, what's the latest on that, and uh, and what are you hearing from? Uh, Those members, Democrats and Republicans uh, who are demanding that they have a clearer picture of what documents were in uh, President Biden's home.
0: Well, the first thing to know is that anything dealing with the balloon in China at this point is now going to supersede anything about documents. Uh, You know, we don't believe that, you know, there were unbelievable state secrets in these documents. That's the first thing. Uh, But we don't know what was in those documents and we don't know, you know, what was jeopardized in terms of national security. And this is where, uh, you know, Mark Warner, the chair of the Intelligence Committee in the Senate, Ron Wyden, you know, Democratic senator from uh, Oregon who's been involved in intelligence matters for years, says, you know, we have the right to see these documents. You just can't tell us, you know, that, you know, we have to defer to the DOJ. This is where David Spunt, our correspondent at the Justice Department, has indicated that there is, uh, you know, an effort now. By the director of national intelligence and the DOJ to provide some sort of a setting, to, a forum to brief them on what these documents are uh, and what was jeopardized. Uh, you know that 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 briefing a couple of weeks ago was very unsatisfying for members of Congress, and it's given you know kind of people on the right something to talk about. You know, here's the problem that, that House Republicans have. House Republicans went through this very rocky race for the speakership. They're not going to be able to pass many bills, even that that's good red blood for them, you know, that works for the conservative base. So all of a sudden they say, aha, you know, you know, there's this two tiered justice system, the way that things were handled with the Mar-a-Lago raid and and the way President Biden, uh, you know, they've treated him. So that gives them some entree there. That's one thing. And it gives them the ability to talk about something else. That's something that uh, you know the administration and Democrats really didn't want to give them. Obviously, you know Republicans were kind of on the ropes after that rocky Speaker race. They're trying to get their footing, and so this, you know, as, as if we were playing tennis, Ben, this would be an unforced error. So that's a, you know kind of the, the first thing. Uh, but there is going to be a push for that, and and in the next couple of weeks, there's probably going to be you know, bifurcated briefings that talk about the the Chinese spy balloon and also the documents. And here we are, you know, almost a week later, I remember standing outside the Senate Intelligence Committee waiting to see if there was any modicum of information and nothing had really changed from the week before. So we're, mm-hmm. you know, two weeks and change into this, uh, you know, just trying to see what these documents were and, and and what might have been compromised. And we don't have any answers there either.
1: Mm-hmm. You know, I, I think that it's uh, it's interesting the you run into the limits of what the House Republicans are really going to be capable to do here. And, you know, the more that they emphasize this oversight uh, section of what they are able to do, you know, it's kind of a reminder of how uh, much the legislative process uh, that feeds into these uh, broader conversations about uh, spending and the like, uh, you know, has truly been broken for quite a long time when it comes to actually having some kind of agreement uh, with the Democrats, uh, you know, in the Senate and with the White House uh, on the upcoming debt limit fight. I know that uh, Speaker McCarthy is supposed to be addressing this later today as we're talking. Uh, what is your expectation for the way that these things are going to play out? Uh, and do you believe that 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 there's a clear understanding on both sides of of what is what is demanded here, what's wanted, and what's realistic when it comes to what Republicans are talking about on uh, on non discretionary on on the non discretionary spending versus discretionary? Right.
0: Well, uh, this is going to be a very long kabuki dance between the president mm-hmm. and Kevin McCarthy. Uh, they're just kind of starting off here. You know, Kevin McCarthy, you know, underscored he thought it was a better meeting than he anticipated. He said something very interesting, which, which a lot of people didn't catch on to, which, which perked my ears up right away. After he came back to the Capitol, after the meeting with the president, he said, you know, if I were the markets, I would feel a lot better about this than, you know, a couple of days ago. Now, why is that important? Because if they have a lot of you know, bad meetings and, and things going back and forth and bad blood and, and, and proposals that don't work, et cetera, or, or look like they're not doing anything about it, you could see getting into March or April or May and the market spins out of control because they don't interpret Washington as treating this as being serious. That's the first thing. Mm-hmm. Number two, you could have what happened in 2011, the last really big debt ceiling crisis we had. When uh, S&P, Standard & Poor's, said, we're still going to downgrade the credit worthiness of the United States because you guys infuse so much drama into this. And even though Congress eventually passed a bill which raised the debt ceiling and actually had a plan to deal with some debt, it was so drama-filled, we don't have a lot of confidence in you guys. So you could see S&P or Moody's or somebody else maybe potentially you know, take a preemptive strike, as it were. Uh, But but here's the realistic part of this. Republicans generally in, in Congress, they say, okay, 31 trillion, that's how much we're in debt. So now we have to talk about the debt ceiling. They use the debt ceiling as kind of a fig leaf to say, all right, now it's serious to talk about spending, and we're not going to touch Medicare, Medicaid, and Social Security. I'll say that again. We're not going to touch Medicare, Medicaid, and Social Security. Those are entitlements which make up about 65 to 70% of all federal spending, yet we're going to balance the budget, and we're going to go after waste. Now, I talked a couple of days ago to Bob Dixby from the Concord Coalition. Uh, which has always worked on these budget matters, and he says it does the movement disservice to say things like that pie in the sky because there's no way you can balance the budget under that. And then, you, you know, it's great to talk about, you know, waste, but there's not enough waste you can cut. And so politically what the members do, especially on the Republican side, is they come out and say they use the debt ceiling then as this cudgel to say we're going to talk about the debt ceiling because we're going to present the appearance that we are being fiscally responsible. And we are going to give the appearance that we are not going to touch those things that most Americans love, Medicare, Medicaid and Social Security. We're going to preserve those things, but we're going to promise you this other thing that we're going to balance the budget. You know, I talk all the time, Ben, about the math. I'll tell you one thing the math on that one really doesn't work and so that's why it's easy to come out and use this business about the debt ceiling as an effort to say oh yes we're actually you know trying to be fiscally responsible and as Bixby put it to me uh, imagine this say say I owed you hundred dollars and and I said I'll get you next month then and you're like all right and then I come around and say you know Ben in the Interest of fiscal responsibility, I'm not going to pay you that, those $100 now. And you, you would say, What? Because <laughs> we have already obligated this. That's the problem. And what are those obligations for? They're for defense, which I can make probably a stronger case now after what happened over the weekend with the balloon, frankly. Okay, there's even been some talk about cutting defense, which is the biggest part of, as you put it, discretionary spending, the spending that Congress allocates every year. Uh, And then you get into the entitlements. If you combine entitlements, Medicare, Medicaid, Social Security, and defense, that is 85% of all federal spending. You can't balance the books that way. And so that's why some of this is farcical. So- Let me bring down the temperature in the room just a little bit. (laughs) What McCarthy and the president will probably eventually do, if we don't get into some crisis here, is that they will raise the debt ceiling somehow, and I can talk about some legislative ways to do that, but come away with, and we've seen this before, 2011, 2013, some modest agreement that puts some spending caps in or something, you know, something that addresses this in some fashion, and then Kevin McCarthy can come back and say, I got to win. We got some spending caps. We definitely went after waste. Okay, that's, that's something he has talked about. We have strengthened Social Security uh, because if they don't deal with this in some form, that's going to be a crisis in a decade or so. So mm. that's the opportunity. And here's the most important thing, Ben, and nobody has reported on this at all. Kevin McCarthy needs a friend right now. He went through this Rocky Speakers race. He won by the skin of his teeth And as you say, they're launching all these investigations. Hunter Biden. We're going to hear about the border. Uh, You name it. Probably COVID origins. There's a lot going on there. But here's what's going on behind the scenes. He's got George Santos running up and down the halls. That's the first thing. He's got Marjorie Taylor Greene in her first appearance on the Oversight Committee, saying that it was wrong for uh, Michael Byrd, the U.S. Capitol Police officer, to shoot Uh, Ashley Babbitt in the Speaker's lobby during the Capitol riot, and we should investigate that and investigate how the 1-6 prisoners are being held at the D.C. jail. You've got Lauren Boebert getting into a debate about bringing firearms into the Natural Resources Committee. You know, she came up the other day. She talked about ATF, Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms. She says, that sounds like a great weekend in Colorado. So the problem for Kevin McCarthy here is he has this extreme wing, this very loud wing in his party that breaks the VU meters on the audio board, they're so loud, and he needs to look like he's governing.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: So what does he do? You go and you govern, and you cut a deal with the President of the United States on spending.
1: You know, I think one of the things that you're talking about here that is very critical from my perspective is you included Medicaid in that list of entitlements that are off the books, off the table for negotiation. Uh, that that view, of course, is not one that is shared by the entirety of of uh, the Republican conference. Um, and you know, you're right. Fine.
0: Technically, they've just talked about Social Security, Medicaid. You're right. You're right. Yeah. Medicare, and, not
1: Medicaid. You're and, right. And, but but of course, at the same time, you know, Medicaid isn't just, you know, the the uh, people think of it as a program primarily for the poor. But given the number of expansions that have happened, uh, it's uh, it reaches much further than that, and there are more people on those programs than I think people necessarily recognize. For instance, long term care, which obviously touches a lot of older, uh, you know, American mm-hmm. citizens, um, you know, is run through the Medicaid program. Do you think there's any possibility that through
0: Obamacare, you know, mind you,
1: right? Yeah, some of it. Yes, yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Um, Do you think there's any possibility that they go after that uh, or that that becomes kind of an aspect of what the fiscal conservatives are demanding, that they put Medicaid on the table? Because that seems to be a non-starter from the Democrats' perspective, but it also could be something that you could see, I I would think, some of these more uh, strident fiscal conservatives demand.
0: Well, that, that's the code that you've been able to crack a little bit there, is that they said nothing to Medicare. I talked about Medicare, Medicaid and Social Security as the entitlements, the most expensive ones. But if you listen to Kevin McCarthy and James Comer, the chair of the Oversight Committee and a few others, they talk specifically about Medicare and Social Security. They have been very clear about that. Now, they might talk generally, say, well, we're not going to cut entitlements. They say that that would include Medicaid. But that is the code that you very artfully filleted there, Ben, that that could be something. And then McCarthy, see, McCarthy has to go back to his conference and say, we got to win here and say, Mm -hmm. you know, remember, we tried to undo Obamacare. I remember when John McCain, you know, he can do the whole thing, and then come back and say, "Look, we actually were able to chip away at Obamacare because we got this agreement here," and that has to be. And again, I don't know this. They are so. Early in these negotiations, we don't really know what's on the table. But again, if you decode that a little bit, that is something that was, you know, sometimes what they don't tell you is actually louder. You know, it's kind of like Tolstoy's dog that didn't bark, you know, the dog. Yes. or it, yes. Actually, actually, that was Sherlock Holmes, you know, the dog that yes. didn't bark. It's the same thing. So that dog didn't bark. But that's the dog we ought to be paying attention to.
1: Mm-hmm. You know, uh, Chad, uh, before I let you go, obviously, you're someone who's a uh, student of the way that the Congress works and of of history and of the history of the State of the Union. Uh, States of the Union have been uh, and and addresses to the, uh, you know, uh, joint uh, uh, chambers of Congress together have been significant speeches at various points in the past and have become significantly less so, I would say, by by any measure, Um, especially in a week when people are talking about the balloon or uh, looking forward to the Super Bowl or something like that. It's hard to see uh, President Biden going out there uh, tomorrow night and and doing anything with a, a State of the Union that's going to change much. But is it significant simply because, you know, for the first time in a long time, you know, he's going to be speaking to uh, a, a level of leadership in the Congress that does not include Uh, some of the most recognizable faces on the on uh, either side uh, that have been around for so long, meaning that, you know, Nancy Pelosi, she's there, but she's not sitting up there. You know, Paul Ryan's gone. You know, a lot of the people who've been around for a long time over the last, uh, you know, 20 years have have now, you know, headed for the exits or departed their major roles. And now you have, uh, you know, Kevin McCarthy in that speakership for the first time after after a long path to get there. Uh, is is this state of the union going to be one that takes on further significance just as an initial expression of an olive branch toward uh, house republicans uh, or do you believe that it will be another one of these quickly forgotten uh, state of the unions
0: well you know you don't know until it happens obviously but i often pay attention to not so much as what is said but the visuals not a soundbite but the sight bites and so you allude to that first sight bite that we will see which is you have Vice President Harris there president of the senate sitting behind him and kevin mccarthy for the first time that is significant that is going to be seminal to see him there and shake hands with the president when he comes up and hands uh you know the speech in you know th- at the end of the speech kevin mccarthy is not going to be like nancy pelosi a few years ago and rip up the speech the president <laughs> trump gave or something like that but there's a visual there that's going to be very important you know people look at that that's what they remember and it's lampooned on saturday night live and i remember you know 20 years ago when you'd have you know denny hastard and dick cheney sitting there. And it looked like the Brothers Grimm sitting behind the president. You know, it's, it's just a different scene with, with, you know, with Harris and McCarthy up there. But I'll come back to one of my points earlier. You know, we cover these, these uh, speeches to a joint session of Congress, and I'll include when uh, President Obama spoke on Obamacare again. This is back in September of 2009. It's always the things that we don't expect that sometimes are, are, is what gets the most attention and so is there a a blatant mistake number 1 or several years ago it was the specter of Uh, you know, President Trump's first impeachment trial, hanging over that. That was significant. Then we really didn't do State of the Union and we did things a little bit differently in the past couple of years uh, with COVID. So this is really the first normal, quote unquote, State of the Union. I would argue that we've had probably since, uh, you know, January. uh, Well, maybe January of 18, because remember, the government was shut down in January, February 19. Okay, when President Trump. So, again, it's been a while since we've had a, a routine exercise here. But look back to what I said earlier, Ben. About Kevin McCarthy and trying to tamp down, you know, the the extremists in his conference here. You know, there was a picture from last year's State of the Union, and again, you had Marjorie Taylor Greene and Boebert up just shouting like they were shouting at an umpire at a baseball game or something at the president. That was the the picture that people took away in the speech, not a joint uh, a joint session of Congress, but not State of the Union. In September of 09, the president spoke about uh, President Obama, about his health care plan and was hectored by Joe Wilson. And nobody remembers a darn thing that uh, President Obama talked about with health care and, you know, co-pays, and everything else. But they remember Joe Wilson hollering at him. You lie. So if you get to these tripwires, that's what people remember. But otherwise, people will probably come away. If not, none of those those things happen, if everybody's, you know, behavior uh, is, you know, they're on their best behavior and, and there's nobody is in politics or anything. People come by and say, yeah, that was a pretty, you know, average speech here. And we got to do more about China. And Republicans will say, yeah, he wasn't you know, he he was weak. He didn't have, lay out a good plan for China. and uh, They're going to hit that. He didn't yeah. lay out a good plan for the border. Those are the things to look at if things go, you, you know, the way we expect. If they don't go the way we expect for the reasons I just stated, that's what becomes the story.
1: Chad Pergram, thank you so much for taking the time to join me today. My pleasure. More of the Ben Domenech podcast right after this. So I've seen and watched uh, a number of State of the unions over the years, and I find them always to be uh, of interest in varying ways. Uh, Sometimes they can be quite boring, but oftentimes there's something else that comes up along the way. That is an indication of certain problems, certain aspects of uh, the presidency, the White House, the way that an administration's direction is going, uh, that can indicate a lot more about what's going on uh, with the country than maybe what is said front and center. I think, for instance, of the the different strains that developed uh, over the years, both in the 90s and then obviously uh, in the late 2000s, that indicated kind of the direction that And the focus that was going on on Capitol Hill wasn't necessarily aligned with the priorities of the American people. You know, I think, for instance, of George W. Bush uh, talking about getting to Mars. I also think about the different challenges that were faced uh, during the times of the uh, Clinton-Gingrich years uh, when Bill Clinton would go on these stem winders with all these different little cul-de-sacs of conversation throughout his speech uh, that really uh, spoke to the fact that the priorities at that time were also maybe out of whack. You think of him talking about school uniforms and the like but one of the things that i do think is really interesting about this state of the union is that it may be the first point where we see the type of generational shift in leadership in washington that i and others have been asking for for a long time you have uh, obviously president biden still hanging on you know still unpopular uh, still you know getting older every day and not really responding necessarily to the demands of the American people, certainly not when it comes to the economy. And you have a new generation of leadership on the Republican side and Kevin McCarthy, uh, who's gonna have the opportunity to uh, sound a different note than those who've come before. Obviously this new speakership for McCarthy is off to a bit of a rough start. The 15 different ballots that he had to go through in order to get the job uh, certainly put some significant strain on the Republican conference, But they've also resulted in a situation where Republicans are now more invested in McCarthy's success on all sides, meaning that if you are a conservative like Marjorie Taylor Greene or Lauren Boebert, uh, you actually need this to work out to a certain degree. Uh, and I think that one of the things that's going to happen going forward is that McCarthy's going to have to choose which fights to pick uh, in order to maintain his role as speaker, but also to advance the ball toward a Republican majority two years from now. One that's going to be entirely framed in the context of the 2024 presidential stakes, where you already have Donald Trump running against his old foe and Joe Biden, is something that now looms over the whole conversation uh, regarding that election. States of the Union oftentimes can be very boring as speeches, but they also can be very interesting as theater. And I think that one of the things that we have to take away from this particular moment in America is that we need more real policy and less of that theater. I'm Ben Domenech. You've been listening to another edition of the Ben Domenech Podcast. We'll be back soon with more to dive back into the fray. Listen ad-free with a Fox News Podcast Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts. And Amazon Prime members can listen to this show ad-free on the Amazon Music app.